0: This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising.
1: As a climate activist, I think it's great to show these big incumbent companies that there is a way to get value for their green, innovative businesses. What the SPAC allows is that big companies that have been doing cool green things are going to start to sort of carve them out and SPAC them so that they can get purpose-built, shareholder-based.
0: What allows big companies to transition from brown to green? David Crane has lived that transition and thinks there are new financial vehicles that make this more possible and more lucrative than ever before. I'm Rebecca Emanuel, and this is Climate Rising podcast from Harvard Business School. We explore the business implications and opportunities of climate change. In this season of Climate Rising, we focus on entrepreneurship tackling climate change. I'm the director of social entrepreneurship at Harvard Innovation Labs, and I work with current and future entrepreneurs every day. Today, we're talking with David Crane, who was famously fired from NRG after pushing the company from being the third largest emitter in the US to being climate forward. He recently announced his newest endeavor, Climate Real Impact Solutions. It's a new investment vehicle, one that allows him to raise money from the public market and then use that money to acquire a company, essentially taking the company public, sidestepping a traditional standard IPO process. This is called a special purpose acquisition company, usually termed a spec. Crane thinks that this new vehicle solves many of the hardest problems with transitioning a big company to being green. And it's especially transformative for climate. He tells us why, starting with his time at NRG.
1: You know that I'm, you know, probably best known for my tenure at NRG. And, and, and you know, that's that ended five years ago.
0: So maybe you can give me a sort of a big picture of the transformation you were trying to lead at NRG.
1: Well, yeah. So, I mean, NRG is, was a, uh, you know, a non-utility, basically power generation company that happened to have its greatest strength in coal-fired uh, power plants. And, um, and I always used to say, in fact, you know, I, I, I would not say that I started, uh, you know, my, you know, adult life as being particularly an environmentalist. I mean, I was always sort of progressive in my thinking, but You know, if I if I think way back to when I was younger, you know, the the social issue that really animated me back in the day was actually capital punishment and, you know, being opposed to that. And so but when I got involved in in power companies because I was a sort of project finance person, um, you know, you quickly become uh, an environmentalist or have to deal with environmental issues and uh, particularly. you know, the air quality. And so, you know, I, in the earlier parts of my executive career, I went through the SOX and the NOx and the mercury. And then when sort of uh, carbon, when greenhouse gas emissions came up, you know, my first reaction was trying to deny that it was anything different from the other pollutants. And it would be just something that we would, we would, we would ultimately figure out how to control with back end, uh, you know, equipment. But it became clear to me sort of in the 2006 to 2010 timeframe that, you know, this, this was a, this was completely different. And so I'm running this company that was actually through, uh, through growth and mergers, you know, we, we had become sort of the third largest emitter of CO2 in the United States. And, and I just went to the board uh, and, uh, and I just went to the board and said, this is not sustainable. You know, we probably can get away with this for something like five to ten more years, uh, but ultimately, you know, this isn't gonna this isn't gonna fly. And you know, the one of the sad things, even to this day, about corporate America is like I never made the moral argument to the board. You know, you know, I I I refer to it all within acceptable board talk. You know, this is a you know, this is an enterprise risk and you know, if we shift into renewables, that's a high growth area and all that. And it does seem to me that in the 21st century, we should be able to go to boards of directors of American companies and say, we're just going to stop doing this because it's wrong.
0: You made that argument in economic terms to them. And what did they say?
1: Well, the board of directors uh, of NRG and you know I I respect the confidentiality of board uh, deliberations, but never at any point was there any serious uh, alternative for NRG uh, discussed or put forward by any one or multiple number members of the board that there was a different approach. So I'm not saying that that all of them were 100% bought into uh, my vision. But they never offered an alternative vision uh, to to this approach, and so you know we so we did we started things like the electric vehicle charging network. We we became the largest solar power company in the United States for a couple of years. Uh, we did the largest carbon capture project in the so we had this multi phase thing, and what ultimately um, you know did me in was that we were not able to. Uh, uh, shift the shareholder base
0: can you tell me more about why it was so difficult to shift the shareholder base?
1: So what happened was we got to the point where we were pouring everything into you know these green zero carbon energy solutions so that we had these growth engines and we never ever attracted a, a green investor because and we we actually sent a firm out to talk to them to investors the the green investors and uniformly they said the, the response they got back would be oh yeah we think NRG's got the strategy completely right we really admire what they're doing and when when the people we sent out this investor relations firm said well then why don't you invest in them they're like we can't invest in them they're you know whatever they hope to be in the future right now they're the third largest polluter in the United States you know, we're, you know, we're a green fund, we can't, you know, I would get laughed out of the room if I took that to investment committee. So, so that was the problem that, that we faced. And, you know, ultimately, you know, at the end, at the end of 2015, like I had alienated the shareholder base.
0: So at the time, that was a catch 22.
1: At NRG, even with a CEO, uh, you know, like me, who had sort of drunk the Kool-Aid about, you know, we need to transform this company from its reliance on coal-fired power plants to a sort of distributed green vision of the energy future. You know, even with the CEO fully on board and leading the charge, there are pockets of internal resistance, you know, both within the employee base, although even sort of more, you know, pronounced um, at the board level and in the institutional shareholder group. That you constantly have to justify why, I mean, I find it hard to believe in retrospect that I had to justify why I was taking the profits from coal-fired power plants that were 40 to 50 years old and plowing them into new solar um, you know, uh, development or The thing that was unbelievably annoying to my shareholder base back in 2015 was that we had started the first electric vehicle charging uh, uh, company in the country, uh, a company called Evigo. And at that point, in build-out phase, it was costing NRG sort of a minus $10 million a year uh, in EBITDA. This is for a company that's a $3 billion a year EBITDA. And I would regularly get grief from the board and from investors. Why are you spending on money on that? And I would just like pull my limited amount of hair out of my head and say, you know, how can you, I mean, this is such an obvious thing that, you know, is that, that, you know, there's someone's going to have to build an electric vehicle charging network to, you know, to, to uh, serve this, uh, this transition in the mobility space. And, I thought that our investors would would respect the idea that we were trying to prepare NRG for a future, you know, five to 20 years in the future, and they absolutely had no respect for that at all.
0: Having a shareholder base and a board that wasn't aligned with transitioning NRG was an incredible challenge. It sounds like you're on a new adventure right now, launching the SPAC, this blank check company in the climate space. Can you tell me why you chose it and... How it solves this specific issue?
1: What the SPAC allows now, and you haven't actually seen many of these SPACs, but you will over the next year, is that that big companies that have been doing cool green things are going to start to sort of carve them out and SPAC them so that they can get the own the you know uh, you know a purpose built shareholder base, and they can get the they they can get the sort of some of the parts valuation in that. You know, there'll be a a clear market indicator of what this business that's otherwise buried inside this giant uh, corporation is worth. And I think that that's going to be a very, very important part. It's going to be a a lucrative opportunity for all these companies, number one. And number two, I think it's a phenomenal thing As as a climate activist. I think it's great to show these big incumbent companies that there is a way to get value for their, their, their green, innovative businesses.
0: I see the value in getting a custom-made, climate-aligned investor base right up front. From a financial side, can you tell me why a SPAC is particularly helpful in the climate space?
1: So, you know, as you know, a lot of areas like clean energy you know, it's sort of a trade-off between uh, capital and operating costs, right? So with solar or something with zero zero marginal cost of production, all the cost is up front. So, you know, a lot of the companies in our space are a little bit inhibited in terms of the, the pace of their growth by access to capital or capital that's too expensive. And this SPAC phenomena is allowing them to access all sorts of capital and at reasonable prices. And Get value for their for their growth potential. You look at companies like Nikola, but also QuantumScape and other companies. And I mean, there people with a straight face are valuing these companies based on 2027 earnings. And there it's 2027 projected earnings based on a product that's not even going to be developed at scale until 2023. And I, I never thought I would live to see the day when the public markets was rewarding this or a future growth story like that. What the market has shown, at least in the ESG sustainability climate space, now the public markets is is an unbelievable appetite right now for a Ford growth story, even if it's a growth story that's gonna take several years to realize. And so-
0: Nicola makes electric trucks and QuantumScape makes batteries. So the SPAC allows climate-focused companies to access capital upfront at a reasonable price. So, what types of companies should consider SPACs?
1: I, I sort of divide the world of companies that should consider SPACs into two groups. One is uh, what I would call moonshot companies, and those are, you know, those are tech-driven companies like you know uh, Nikola and. Um, and QuantumScape that are addressing a sort of a you know a blank space that has endless you know potential in terms of total addressable market. A lot of them are pre-revenue and and um, but there is also more of and and for those companies SPACs are basically displacing late-stage venture capital. Then there's another category called you know what I would call more classic emerging growth companies that would have normally at this point looked at middle market private, uh, private equity, you know, outcomes for their next sort of round of capital as they graduated out of VC. for those companies, the market is still willing to look forward, but, but those investors are going to look at more traditional metrics about, you know, revenues and unit costs. And, um, and they're not going to be looking forward to 2027. They want to know what you think you can do in the next, you know, two to three years.
0: So, can you walk me through how a SPAC works? First, you raise money from the public markets, and then you choose a company. When you buy them, they effectively become public, but with a little bit of a different process than a regular IPO. Is that right?
1: First, you do the IPO of the blank check company, uh, which you know we finished uh, just three weeks ago, and then you have two years to 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 actually buy something and there's a big incentive in the current marketplace not to use your two years, but to get something done in the first six months. So, so yes, uh, probably the grace equivalent, I would call it speed dating, you know, is like you, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, get it down to, you know, two or three companies that they like you and you like them.
0: And you just did this specifically in the climate space. What criteria uh, is your team using as you, um, narrow down the pool of potential fits?
1: It's, well, what I would say is interesting is what's not, you know, usually when you enter an M&A transaction, uh, the first three things you think about are value, value, and value. And in, interestingly, while value is not unimportant in a SPAC context, ultimately, ultimately the market's going to set the value of the, you know, of the SPAC company uh, after the de transactions.
0: And that frees you up to look at other criteria?
1: Well, I guess what our SPAC would say is that, well, we start with the fact, you know, we called ourselves climate real impact for a reason. Let's say you looked at a large, you know, renewable power company that, that, you know, builds uh, solar plants, you know, in the desert you know, it's undeniably green. It's doing, you know, it's doing the right thing. But if it did not exist, would the world be a different place? And the answer is probably no, because there's so many solar development companies that if, if if one company didn't do a particular project, then others would. So in that way, some of these moonshot companies that I'm talking about are very appealing because they're definitely a higher beta, but they're they're actually trying to do something transformational that would, you know, actually move the needle on the, you know, the 40 billion tons of CO2 that humans emit into the atmosphere every uh, year. So that's one that's one criteria that maybe is different from others. But this is very much my personal point of view that a lot of quote unquote impact investing should be renamed as. I want to feel good about myself before I go to sleep investing in the sense that, you know, people are shy. They're not, you know, there are these funds there. They won't invest in cigarette companies. They won't invest in coal fired companies,
0: but are they really having impact on the climate? Do you feel like SPACs are particularly useful for climate change at this moment, relative to anything else on the ESG list?
1: No, I, I think SPACs are a huge, um, uh, is it's, you know, in a, in a period that's been, you know, pretty dark for climate activists over the last, uh, four years, uh, that the emergence of SPACs, the warm embrace that the, the public markets are of, of this whole space, um, is, is one of the, the, the most encouraging signs that I've seen. It's, you know, it's going to, ripple all the way through the system to, to stimulate, you know, sort of, you know, sort of in the garage innovation, the idea that, you know, that you could actually bring forward, you know, sort of the, you know, reaching the, you know, not only, you know, doing well or doing good by doing well, you know, that you could bring all parts of that, you know, forward and, 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 you know, maintain your company and its integrity and, and and the fact that we're, um, you know, we're looking for companies that are mission driven and that the and that the market's embracing that. It's sort of a, it's it's an implicit rejection of, you know, sort of the single bottom line approach. It's just it's just all a positive uh, thing for the for the climate movement.
0: So while specs may sound a little bit wonky as this public company that merges with a startup and then takes the startup public, in some ways it actually feels transformational all the way down the line, all the way to people who have a new idea that's just an idea in their head and in their garage.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think of the flexibility of it, you know, all the way down the line from the people in the garage, but, you know, let's look at the other end of it. Uh, let's take as a case study you know let's let's not use specific names but let's just call their a company let's use the name tesla like you know tesla you know which has been validated by the market many times over with you know over you know 200 billion market cap and and this is all notwithstanding like uh you know a, a truly charismatic visionary CEO but one who's You know, sort of quirky by standards of traditional public company uh, CEOs in terms of the things he says and gets involved in that that if you look at Tesla, you know, they've had to try and develop the value chain from beginning to end as the first plug in electric light duty vehicle company. But they might make the decision, for example, that, well, our capital structure, you know, we, we don't really need to own the global electric vehicle charging network that we've spent a very large sum of money, well, that we've spent billions of dollars in, in order to enable our, our sale of these cars. The SPAC market and is, is that if you know if Elon wanted to do this, he could he could carve out his electric vehicle charging network you know, shine a light on on it, form it as a different company, still call it Tesla charging. He could maintain majority control if he wanted to consolidate the accounting or he could go minority and deconsolidate. But but for him, who's, you know, singularly focused on um, maintaining the Tesla customer experience from beginning to end, he could SPAC and get, you know, the financial benefits of that, Without ever losing control of the branding or the uh, you know the customer experience and so so it helps not only the person in the garage but big companies uh, who are thinking about how to you know rack and stack what they do.
0: It seems like one of the core things in your head that matters for climate is how our investors are going to think about things and that that will drive a lot of what's possible and what's not for. For a business. So I wanted to just ask you about this argument that you talked about, that investors want a less diversified investment. Either they want green energy exposure or they want coal, if they're going to do coal. They don't want something hybrid. Does that feel like the right path going forward?
1: Well, you know that that is an area where I don't think that the public markets have changed too much. Is that there is still, you know, that the that the discrediting of the conglomerate uh, of the conglomerate as a business form. You know, uh, I'm you know you're way too young, but it, to remember by the 1970s, like with companies like ITT, there were there was a virtue seen in conglomerates in terms of sort of risk mitigation internally, but the market went away from that, and the sort of the last surviving conglomerate was GE, which you know obviously has fallen on hard times in the last few years. So, the 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 fact that the public markets want a pure play uh, has not changed, and I don't think uh, will change over time. And so, again, to the point that some of these big companies, which have been trying to develop these green businesses internally. Again, I think the SPAC is a great option for them to give the market what it wants, which is a a pure play.
0: Fantastic. David, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. It's been uh, fabulous speaking with you.
0: On January 22nd, David Crane's team at Climate Real Impact Solutions announced that they had merged with EVgo, the nation's largest public electric vehicle fast charging network. With more than 800 locations in 34 states, they charge from 100% renewable energy. The deal raised around 575 million for EVgo and made EVgo a publicly listed company. The following day, Crane's SPAC soared more than 80%. That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time, we dive into the world of sustainable fashion.
1: Reishi is literally made of, of carbon that's been pulled out of the atmosphere. And so the reishi production process itself is carbon negative. It then, of course, ends up moving around the world. Um, it ends up being tanned, albeit with a, a, a very green chemistry compared to what's used uh, for traditional animal leather tanning. But the overall carbon footprint ends up far, far lower than, uh, than that of animal hides and that of polyurethane or PVC leathers.
0: Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rebecca Emanuel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. This episode was made possible by the collaboration between this episode's associate producer, Jake Mayo, HBS class of 2021, producer, Mary Dew, and our team from the HBS Business and Environment Initiative, faculty chair, Mike Toffel, and Jennifer Nash, Lynn Shank, and Elise Clarkson. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising homepage, climaterising.hbs.edu.